And we've started Luke just a few weeks ago. We'll be working through this gospel over the next several months. Uh, remember, Luke was written um, in the mid-60s. It's, Luke is a second-generation believer, um, and he's writing to a man named Theophilus um, because he's looking to give this non-Jew um, uh, confidence, assurance, right? That there's been some fear and some doubt um, as to why things have been as difficult. And so he's writing an orderly account from really John the Baptist through the early church, a generation post um, post Jesus, right? Because Luke and Acts um, are a sequel, right? They're one one book together. And so he's looking to give assurance um, and and steadiness as we read that we would have firm footing in the person and the work and the life of Jesus. And so if you'll pick up, we're going to pick up in verse 21 of chapter 2. And in the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So if, we're, if we know that Luke is writing this to give us an orderly account, if we know that he's writing it to give Theophilus um, and then the, the broader audience certainty and assurance and, and firm grounding, one of the issues that has come about is that this, in the 60s here, is that um, Judaism and Christianity are beginning to feel at odds with one another. And there's, there's been persecution, there's been difficulty. And so for Theophilus, a non-Jew, he's going... Hey, so what's, what was the plan? Did God mean for this to happen? Like, is, what, what's taking place here? And so what Luke is going to do here in chapter 2 is going to show us, listen, the plan of God was always for this to come out 
of Judaism. This isn't an offshoot. This isn't something secondary. That, um, that Jesus' parents, right, were pious. We see them here being obedient to the law, coming to the temple at the right time. Leviticus 12 would lay out um, after the birth of a child when a woman should go, when he should be circumcised, when she was no longer unclean, but clean, right, and to have a purification ceremony. So they're following the law. What we're seeing here is that Jesus is coming from a, a pious, devout Jewish family. He is going to come from within Judaism, right? That, um, exa- or, sorry, um, Exodus 13, right, would say that the firstborn, for whether it was an animal or um, from a woman, right, needed to be dedicated to the Lord. This is taking us back to Exodus when Israel left Egypt, right? And it was, they were supposed to, to have slaughtered and, and put blood around the door lintel, right? To recognize that God was going to come. And if, and if you didn't do that, if you weren't trusting in the blood, right, that the firstborn of every household would die. And so now Israel, right, dedicates the firstborn of animals and of children to the Lord, right, as a reminder of His grace and His mercy, of His deliverance and His protection. Leviticus 12 would actually have said that they, would, they should have brought a lamb, right, that would have been a burnt offering, and a dove or a pigeon for a sin offering. But there's a provision there that if the family is, is on the poorer side, that they could bring two birds, right? One for each. And so we see here, even here in the early days, that, that they were not probably impoverished. We know Joseph was a carpenter. He had a trade. But they weren't a wealthy family. Isaiah 61 told, tells us that, that the Messiah is going to come, right, for the prisoner and for the poor and for the brokenhearted and that we see even in the family that Jesus is born into, right, that he's, he's coming for them. This, this poor family that, that are pious, that they're obeying the law. Right, that we're, we notice that it's happening at the temple, the, the, the most holy of places for Jews. Right, this place where God's presence would meet with mankind, with humanity. This mingling of the divine and the ordinary coming together. And that he is going to be now affirmed by both an older man and an older woman, these older, faithful, devout Jews who were looking and expecting God to rescue and to redeem and to send the Messiah. Right? And so he's telling Theophilus, listen, this is happening in the temple. He has pious, devout Jewish parents. And then these other older, devout, righteous Jewish believers are going to affirm and see, hey, Jesus, He's the one we've been looking for. He's the one we've been waiting on. He's the one that we've been expecting. And if we look a little further, we didn't read this far yet, but look at it in verse 41. So we move in this scene from Him being eight days old, um, right, being a, a baby, to all of a sudden He's going to be 12. Verse 41, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to customs. And when the feast was ended, they were returning home. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, 
listening to them and asking them questions. So we have a little bit of a strange story going on here, right? But what Luke is wanting us to first note, again, is just the, the piousness, the obedience to Judaism wasn't just in those early days. Here we are 12 years later, and they're, they're traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They're doing what a good, righteous, religious Jewish family would be doing, right? And that Jesus is in the temple with the, with the scribes and with the, with the priests, and he's, and he's being affirmed, and he's engaged in conversation. Now, if you're wondering, wait a second, they lost Jesus, right? Like, what's, what's going on here? So this would have been for them somewhat, somewhere between a 70 and 80 mile trip because it was dangerous to travel. They would have traveled in a larger group in a caravan, right? It was just kind of moving along. You might almost think of like um, that covered wagons, right? They moved in numbers because it was a deterrent. And so the, you, the kids, right, you can imagine them running from one group to the next to the next between friends and family. And so you're not necessarily watching a 12-year-old the whole time. And, and so you're thinking he's with friends, he's with family. And when you go to camp that first night to have your meal, you start to realize he's not here. And most of you have probably had a moment, maybe not quite to this extent, right? Where, whether it's in Walmart or at an amusement park or in your own backyard where a kid just isn't where they're supposed to be. And you feel that bile rise up and that fear, and, and you're, you start to panic. Um, so I was actually um, on a trip in high school. We were going to California on a student ministry trip, and there were three 15-passenger vans. And I'm old enough that this was before the days of cell phones, right? And so the way the vans communicated with each other was there was a walkie-talkie in each van, right? And so you'd walkie-talkie from one van to the next. And we were in Flagstaff, Arizona at a hotel going to head the rest of the way into California. And that morning, we all go and we get on our three vans. And the youth minister comes through and he counts, 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 counts. Okay, everybody's here. All right, let's go. And we get about two hours down the road. Maybe not quite that long. And our youth minister, he, he clicks and he says, hey, would y'all count again? I just have this nagging feeling that something's wrong. So everyone counts, our van's right, our van's right, and the last one goes, hey, we're short one. Again, this is before cell phones. And what had happened was one of the, one of the kids had gone into, had forgot something in his room, had been counted, and then ran up to the room to grab it. And in that short moment, he'd been counted, now he's not on. And he's, we're gone. And we're headed down the highway. And so, again, we can't call back to the hotel. We're on the, we're on the highway. So the two of us, we just pulled over in our vans and we sat there and the other van sped back, right? Hoping, and everything was fine. He was sitting in the lobby. There was actually a couple from Tampa in the lobby of the hotel um, and he was wearing a Tampa t-shirt. And so they had sat and waited for him, hoping that we didn't make it all the way to California before we realized he was gone. So if, you're, if you want to give Joseph and Mary a hard time here, I think anybody who's been around with kids knows this happens easier than we would like to admit that it does, all right? All right, so they've now headed back to Jerusalem, and we'll pick that up here in a moment. But what Luke really is trying to help us see is that Jesus is coming from within Judaism, right? That he is devout, that he is faithful, that his family is, that he's telling Theophilus, listen, this isn't some weird um, offshoot. This has been God's plan from the beginning. And not only is it coming from within Judaism, 
but that Jesus is special, He's holy, He's, he's different. Did you even notice in, in this kind of vignette here that just the, the, the mix of the ordinary and the divine. So Anna was going to the temple all the time. That was part of her routine, right? So she's there and yet has eyes to see Jesus, right? That the Spirit gives her eyes to understand who He is and what's going on there, right? That Simeon, right, if we look back at him, look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple as at when the parents brought in the child Jesus. Like the Spirit is leading him in as Joseph and Mary are bringing Jesus in. Right? And the Spirit confirms, like, this is the one you've been waiting for. Right? We see this ordinary, at eight days you do this, you circumcise. At 40 days, as a woman, you're purified. That He's coming and praying that these ordinary rhythms of life also have this divine, special, unique emphasis that are happening at the right time and the right place because God is orchestrating. He's in control and He's sovereign. And so we begin to see fulfillment take place. That, that this child is different. You'll notice that it says that Simeon, in verse 25, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is not a word maybe we use a ton, but the consolation here means he's waiting for the hope, for the comfort of Israel. Right? That things are broken. Rome is um, in charge and it's over them. They know that there's, there's brokenness and sin amongst the people that God has something more for them, something different for them. They're waiting for the hope, the peace, the comfort, right? This would have come, one of many places, um, is Isaiah 49, verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Because of the history of God rescuing them from the hands of Egypt, right? From Him rescuing them from the hands of many enemies. And and then these promises, right? That God is going to comfort His people. He's going to comfort the afflicted. That they were longing for this. You can see this also in Isaiah 40, verse 1. Isaiah 51, verse 3. 57, verse 18. 61, verse 2. Right? This idea that that God was going to send comfort to His people. And so Simeon has been longing and waiting, going, God, when are you bringing it? When are you bringing our hope? When are you bringing our comfort? We desperately, we need it. We're longing for it. When you're going to come and make things right, that you're going to restore things, that you're going to bring healing, restoration. And I love here that Luke includes, right, that this, this man Simeon, who had been promised this and is now seen the child, right? He says, so Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. He's like, I can die in peace because you have kept your word, that God keeps his word, that God brings about fulfillment. And remember, Luke is writing this to a man who's having some fear and some doubt and some concern. And he's saying, Simeon, all he needed was to see that this child had been born, that the consolation of Israel was here. And he's like, you can take me now. God, because you've kept your word. You're going to keep all your promises. 
Like what a beautiful testimony to Theophilus here. And so he says, Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so in that, the same moment then, as, as he's done and is kind of prophesied and, and worshipped and sung, right? it feels a little bit like you're watching um, a, a musical, because in chapters 1 and 2, like people just keep breaking out into song. Right? Like you've got this story going, and then people just start singing or praying. Um, and so then Anna comes, and she's this older woman. Her husband died seven years into their marriage, and instead of remarrying, she has devoted herself to, to, the, to the service of God at the temple. And she has been waiting for decades with fasting and with prayer night and day. Verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, the redemption of Israel. Her word here is about the deliverance from bondage, the deliverance from enemies, someone coming in power. So not only were the people waiting for hope and for comfort and for encouragement, they were also waiting for God to act in power, just like He did as He took them out of Egypt to come and deliver them from those who have enslaved them, for those who have held them down in bondage from their enemies. And we've already seen that the promise of that is going to be not just political, but it's going to be spiritual. That we have enemies within, right? That we have become the enemies of God, in fact. And that we fear death because of our sin. That we have a spiritual need, not just a political, practical need. We have both of these. And that God is going to bring Redemption, power, and deliverance. We can see this in Isaiah 52, verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, in, um, I may have written the wrong one down there. That was not the verse I was looking for. Um, oh, because I'm in 51 instead of 52. All right, sorry, 52. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people, and He has redeemed Jerusalem. We see both the comfort and the redemption together, and that was Isaiah 52.9, not 51.9. Right? That, that both this, this hope of consolation and this hope of redemption are coming forth here from these two older saints right, who have been longing and waiting for God to act and to move in gracious and merciful ways. And so if we go to the end of chapter 2 now, we can begin to see the, the combination of these two natures that Jesus is both fully divine and fully man. He's both. Right? The fullness of God is dwelling bodily. That He is both. Pick up now in verse 47. Remember they've been searching for Him for three days. Verse 47 um, as he's listening and, and asking questions, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Like Mary and Joseph, they get that panic here. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Luke is foreshadowing for us here. Like as Mary has had an angelic encounter, as she's heard prophecy and song break out over Jesus, right? That there's still just this like, I'm figuring this out. Like I'm, I'm still trying to understand this. Like this is my baby, and it's not. Like what? Who? Who is he, and what's he going to do, and what's this going to look like for us? Because if you think about it, we see that even the disciples, three plus years of ministry with Jesus, are going, now what? Like, you're going to do what? But, but Jesus, you're going to leave us? But no, 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 we need you. Right? Like, that we see this, this struggle to understand who Jesus is is not just a common um, issue now, it's been an issue always. Because God is acting and working and moving in ways that weren't quite expected even though there was an anticipation of hope, of joy, of rescue, of redemption, it's just working its way out a little bit differently than they would have anticipated. But Luke shows us here, Jesus, as a young baby, has been affirmed by the Holy Spirit. He's been affirmed by young women like Mary. He's been affirmed by older folks, both male and female and Simeon, and Anna. He's been affirmed by lower-class citizens like the shepherds. He's been affirmed and attested to by supernatural beings, the angels. Like Luke is just saying, listen, it doesn't matter who sees him, they know that he's special. They know he's the one that's been sent by God, both male and female, all of humanity, old and young, supernatural, um, lower class, the priestly system, they see him and they're like, God is at work and he is doing something. So Theophilus, take heart. He has been affirmed and he has been attested to. He's also encouraging Theophilus and us this morning as non-Jews, right? We're Gentiles, we're not Jews, that we've always been a part of the story. Look back to what Simeon says. For my eyes, in verse 30, have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. It's like, listen, you're a part of the story, and you've always been. You're not a tack-on. You're not an add-on. The, the, the glory of God, the rescue of God, the salvation of God was never meant to end on Israel. It was never meant to like kind of terminate and to stop on them. It was meant to be, they were meant to be a conduit to flow it out to the nations. Right? As they trusted and became this prized possession of God, it would then flow through them to the rest of the world, and the nations would be drawn to see what God has done and to know the one true God. So he's saying, Theophilus, you're not just a tack on, you're not just an add-on. This was meant for you from the beginning. In Genesis 12:3, as Abraham is called and is being made into the first into the nation of Israel, he's told, "All the families of the world will be blessed because of what I'm going to do through you." Right? We're told that from the beginning. In Genesis 17:4 and 17:6, he's told that nations will come from you. Right? That the nations will be blessed by you. And then we see this in Isaiah that they should have known that it wasn't just for Israel, but it was for, for all nations. 
This is Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I'm the Lord, and I've called you in righteousness, and I will take you by the hand, and I will keep you, and I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. Right, This promise that it wasn't just for the nation of Israel, but it was going to be for others, and those in the most difficult of situations. We can turn over to, to Isaiah 49, verse 6, and we see this. Um, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel, and I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Theophilus, church this morning, we've always been included in the plan that God was going to rescue the world through His people, Israel, through His Son, Jesus. He was going to bring us back into right relationship with God the Father through this plan that has been set in motion since the beginning. And we're beginning to see it come to fruition here. It's a good reminder for us this morning that Israel sometimes kind of wanted to hoard it to themselves, and they forgot that they were meant to be a conduit to the nations. The church this morning, that if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, would you not hoard that to yourself? That we too are meant to be a conduit to those around us, a reflection of the image of God to say, hey, we were just a poor beggar who's found food. And it's really good. And it's available to you as well. That we too would not just say, okay, God, give me what you got but that it would flow through us to those around us who are in desperate need of hope and of peace and of joy, who are prisoners, who are bound up by sin, who are not at peace, who are captives to their own desires, who don't see and love and trust Jesus. So how is this going to take place? I don't know if you heard it in our first reading, but there were some ominous kind of undertones in what Simeon was saying. Look back at verse 34. As, as Joseph and Mary are marveling at this, this initial positive statement, listen to what Simeon says. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. That doesn't sound good, Right? This isn't just like glory. He's saying, listen, not everyone's going to see Jesus the way we see Jesus. Not everyone's going to respond, even in the nation of Israel, to the expectation of the Messiah and is going to recognize Him. That's why John will say, All right, He came into the world and His own didn't recognize Him. But there will be those who are going to find Him to be a stumbling block and to say, this isn't what we want. This isn't what we longed for. This isn't who we're looking for. So we're still going to look for the Messiah. Some of it's going to be because they're in power, right? And with the coming king, it means you lose power, and they don't want to give it up. Others are going to want to hold on to what they have in the, in the, the spiritual world. And that he's going to say, listen, some are going to rise and be redeemed and be rescued and be taken out of slavery and out of prison and out of blindness physically and spiritually, and others are going to find judgment because they're going to reject him. That there will be both. That there will be these two groups that Jesus is going to bring judgment. 
it isn't automatic that just because Jesus has stepped on the scene that it just means everything's, like everyone just believes and everything's great. And, and yet our, our culture and our world is trying to convince us of this, right? That it's just, it's salvation for all. But salvation is submission to Jesus. It is it's bowing a knee to Him. Simply believing that God exists, right, is where the demons are. They believe He exists. They don't trust Him, they don't follow Him, and they don't submit to Him. Submission, right, is trusting that Jesus is who He says He is, and that His life and His death and His resurrection is enough to secure you right standing with God. Right, that He is going to bring some up and others were going to fall. And He even tells Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And He's not speaking here of a literal sword, but as a mother who will stand and watch her son be crucified. Right, she's going to be pierced as well of the pain of watching her son be rejected and scorned and hated and crucified by those He came to rescue and to save and to love. Isaiah 8 promised that, that the Messiah would be a stumbling block to some. In Genesis 3, right, as, as Adam and Eve right, have, have fallen and, and they're, they're being told what's going to happen and the, the serpent is being cursed, he's told, right, what? There'll be one who will come and serpent, you're going to strike his heel. But he's going to crush your head. We saw those ominous undertones, but a promise of hope. That's going to happen at the cross, right? Where Jesus will crush Satan and our enemies. But He is struck. And He's killed and He's crucified. And, and Mary's soul is pierced through as a sword. If you go to verse 46, it says, After three days, Mary and Joseph, they found Him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So right, Jesus stays. They go a day's journey. Right? Then they have to come a day's back, and on the third day they find him doing his father's business. Right? He's telling them, like, hey, you're my parents, but I'm, he's, he's recognizing his sonship, right? that I'm, I'm here for my father's business in my father's house. Right? It is foreshadowing that there will be another time that after three days where they're looking and not finding him because he has been buried Right, that he has been about his father's business. Luke is laying this, this foreshadowing for us already in Luke 2 with infant and young man Jesus. So the offer for us this morning is this. is There's an offer of consolation and of redemption. And that they're found in Jesus. So the consolation, the hope, the encouragement is this. is He's setting the world right. He is in the process of of restoring things, and we'll see that in the life of Jesus. And so it means in your personal life, where things are a wreck, the Lord loves to bring consolation, hope, peace, encouragement, and to set things right. It's what we long for, and it's what we hope for. And He's also going to do it in the world. And it's why we say, come Lord Jesus, because we see the world's broken, and we want things to be made right once and for all. And He also is bringing redemption Right, because He's defeated our enemies of, of sin and Satan and death. He's freed us from the bondage of sin. And so redemption is available that your enemies, you've been delivered from them and you've been given hope and peace and joy in the person and the work of Jesus this morning. And so you can either rise with that or you can fall with that as you reject Him. 
Because look back to verse 30 one last time. Simeon says, as he's holding this child, Jesus, he goes, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation is not an idea, it's not a thought, it's not a teaching, it's a person. It's Jesus. It is Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection. Salvation is Him. And whether we know Him, trust Him, and follow Him or not. That's why verse 79 of chapter 1 is, is so powerful, that He has come to give light to those who sit in darkness. And some this morning are sitting in darkness, in the shadow of death. But Jesus, right, is here to guide our feet into the way of peace because He is our salvation. And so Luke now is going to break um, us off now into the life of Jesus moving forward. But He has set this stage to see and to expect that this is our hope. This is our consolation. This is our salvation. It is Jesus Himself. And so, if you're wrestling with Jesus, if you're struggling to believe that this is for you, right? Because that's some of what Theophilus is struggling with. He's going to say, now let's look at the life of Jesus. Expect the Spirit to speak and to work and to move for you and for your good to reveal Jesus to you, that He is sufficient. The story is continuing. Listen, Jesus wasn't affirmed as the Messiah retroactively. He was expected, He was affirmed, and then He walked in it because it's who He was. So this morning, would we trust that He is sufficient for our needs, physically and emotionally, spiritually, and that He is setting things right? Listen to how the author of Hebrews writes this. This is chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So like Simeon and like Anna, are we eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus? Because He will set all things right, finally, once and for all, for good. Not to deal with sin, that's been dealt with, but to put us at peace to bring our consolation and our redemption once and for all for eternity, for us and for creation. Right? Are we eagerly longing and waiting for that, trusting that's who He is? So this morning, the band is going to come back up. We're going to sing um, to our King who hears and receives our praise because He's alive and well and on His throne. The Lord's Supper is, is set up for us and it's set in four locations across the room. So at any point during these three songs, you're welcome to stand up and go as an individual or as a family or with friends. I'm taking for, for, for believers this morning that cup of juice, being reminded that it was His blood spilt so that yours wasn't, and that bread that it was His body crushed so that yours wasn't. That this morning we have right standing with God, not because you're here, not because you've prayed a prayer, not because you've been baptized, not because you've done those things, right? but because Jesus was crushed on your behalf and beat our enemies, and is walking right out of the grave, and is alive today, and has said, you're mine. Come sit at the table, son. Come sit at the table, daughter. And has brought us into the family. So you pray, you confess sin, and then you take the cup. And remember why we have salvation and hope this morning. Let's pray.
God, we ask this morning that you would bring continued consolation to us. Lord, that as we wrestle with doubts and with fear, with unbelief, an unsure, an unsureness if, if, if forgiveness is meant for us, God, that we would be reminded that none of us have earned this, that none of us can, can keep it, but God, that you have given freely by your grace and your mercy. Lord, that as we have sat in the shadow of death, as we've sat in darkness, God, that you have rescued us and seen us and made us yours. And so now we can walk in obedience and in trust and dependence upon you. And so, Lord, would we sing and cry out with our mouths and our hearts and our minds be in agreement as we sing? And, Lord, would we take the bread, the juice, as we remember that our hope today is in a person, it's in Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.